So please let yourself come back in and find a way to sit which is comfortable and at ease. In reflecting about what I might speak on this evening, I became aware during the day that Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma uh, was released today from house arrest and freed for the first time in some years. And she's been in and out of house arrest for many, many years in the last, over the last decade or more, as the, in many ways, the inspiration and spiritual leader, political and spiritual leader, the heart of the Burmese people. And for those who don't know the situation in Burma, for the past 40 years, uh, there has been a long-standing military dictatorship Um, that over the past decades has done everything from log the teak forests and sell the the wealth of Burma to buy weapons, primarily from the Chinese um, Communist Army, um, to build up their military, uh, to imprisoning the students and banning all political activity and um, uh, making war on the indigenous and uh, non-Burmese people who make up more than half of the country of Burma, all the different states and nations around the, the central core of Burma has been terrible kinds of fighting and, and uh, enslaving some of the people. So just an awful and very, very long-standing suffering for the country of Burma. And in the midst of it, um, Aung San Suu Kyi has been an unwavering spirit of uh, compassion and steadfastness for the Burmese people. And her Dharma practice um, comes from the lineage that also is carried here at Spirit Rock from the teacher Mahasi Sayadaw, my teacher, and Upandita Sayadaw. Aung San Suu Kyi's father um, was probably the most famous person in modern Burmese history. He was the first president of Burma when it was set free um, during the time of the Indian independence, the Burmese independence, and then he was assassinated. And Aung San Suu Kyi herself, who's been arrested and beaten and terrible things have happened, the last time she was set free from some years of house arrest, somebody came with a microphone as they do, um, and said, um, now that you've been set free, uh, um, how does it feel? And she said, well, it's not very different because in my mind I've always been free. Um, and she speaks and writes, whether she's imprisoned or not, in the most um, uh, simple and straightforward way. Um, as she said, I simply teach the principles of respect for all human beings and encourage us all in this country to remember our dignity and our human rights and from that place to dialogue with those who would imprison us. For um, um, even though she, she, she struggles, as she said, to try to keep everyone nonviolent, she believes in the end that um, 
that it's only through nonviolence that freedom can be won, she said. If we do not, we will simply perpetuate the cycle of violence and it will never come to an end in our country. She also says, I never felt like a prisoner and I think that's because I've never learned to hate them. If I had, I would really have been at their mercy. People ask me why I'm not frightened of those who would torture or imprison me or those who follow. Was it because I wasn't aware that they could do whatever they wanted to me? Oh, I'm fully aware of that. I think it was because I did not hate them. And you cannot really be frightened of people you do not hate. Hate and fear go hand in hand. And I simply will not do that. Um, So when she won the Nobel Peace Prize some years ago, She was unable to go out of Burma to receive it, and her husband, who was in England with her two children, received it for her. And then uh, two years ago, her husband was dying of cancer, um, and she asked permission from the military authorities to go and see him before he died. Um, And the only permission they would grant was that if she left the country, she would not be able to return. So she couldn't even go to see her husband before he died. In this last month's Oprah O magazine, sometimes sometimes you quote the sutras, um, and sometimes you quote the sutras in other forms. And there's 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 great stuff in this particular issue. But among other things, it has a two-page spread portraits of strength with a picture of Aung San Suu Kyi, um, talking about uh, the spirit that she's carried over these long, long years of struggle. And she says in this, those who have to tread the long and weary path of a life that sometimes seems to promise little beyond suffering and more suffering ahead need to develop the capacity to draw strength from their hardships that trouble their existence, to use them to awaken. For it is from hardship rather than ease that we gather wisdom and develop true compassion. And then she gives a verse of Rabindranath Tagore, a poem where he writes, If they answer not your call, walk alone. If they turn away and desert you, when crossing the wilderness, if they do not hold up the light when the night is troubled with storm, O you of evil luck, with the thunder flame of pain, ignite your own heart and let it burn alone. And then she goes on. There are no words of comfort in this poem. It is not a poem that offers heart's ease, but it teaches you that a citadel of endurance can be built on a foundation of anguish. How can anybody who has learned to ignite their heart with a thunder flame of their own pain ever know defeat, victory, freedom, and unshakable compassion is ensured to those who are capable of learning the hardest lessons that life has to offer. So I read that in her honor. And I read it on this retreat that just finished a couple of weeks ago in the desert in Yucca Valley. And I read it just before one of the participants in the retreat died a very generous and fine man, a physician, husband, Phil Barron, um, who died. And we who were on the retreat, um, those who knew him, were both shocked and um, deeply moved and affected by his passing. And even those who he just touched in the smallest ways 
there was a kind of outpouring of prayers and a deepening of their own hearts in the presence of his passing. And I think about it in these times. Um, I was here yesterday for a little bit for one of the various weekend teachings at Spirit Rock, and there were a lot of people uh, for that, and kind of looking at this center. And sometimes Spirit Rock is a little bit like a three-ring Dharma circus. (laughs) We have Stephen Batchelder and Martine Batchelder, who are exquisite teachers, monks, They'd practice as monks in both the Tibetan tradition and in the Korean Zen tradition. And we had Byron Katie offering teachings this weekend on the nature of the mind, and Adi Ashanti together with Anna Douglas recently, and Ajahn Jamnian who's coming in a few weeks to offer teachings, and Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg coming a bit after that. And you know how it is in San Francisco, we have the guru of the month club, you know, the Lama of the week and the Sayadaw and the, um, and uh, what do you do with all of that? I mean, all of this is happening and how do we use it? This is from Tony Packer. She writes, the emergence and blossoming of understanding, of love, Wisdom has nothing to do with any tradition, no matter how ancient or impressive. It has nothing to do with time. It happens completely on its own when a human being questions, wonders, listens deeply, and looks without getting stuck in fear or what should be. When self-concern is quiet, When fears are in abeyance, when the mind and heart are open, then heaven and earth open too. And in the spirit of Aung San Suu Kyi and her freedom that was gained today outwardly, I want to speak further about how in the midst of the complexity of the world, and all the different spiritual teachings that come and go, um, how we can find that place of our own refuge. When I went into the forest monasteries of my teacher, Ajahn Chah, in uh, Thailand and Laos, the Mekong River Valley, he described the meditation practice that was offered to us in the simplest way. He said to us, what I invite you to do is to take a seat like the Buddha, halfway between heaven and earth in this human form, to sit erect and open all the doors and the windows, sit in this little monk's hut or nun's hut you might have, open all the doors and the windows and take the one seat in the center of the cottage, in the center of the hut, in the center of the room, and let all else come and go. And your only task is to remain in your seat. And if you can do that, he said, all wisdom and all compassion will come to you. For if you sit and let your eyes be open and your heart be open, your mind be open, then you will know the nature of this world and you will be free. When the Buddha first taught, and even in the succession of years as he wandered around India, he was regularly challenged by various yogis and ascetics saying that he wasn't practicing hard enough, that he had not done enough in his life to merit the title of being the Blessed One or the Awakened One or the Buddha. And it was at that point in his teaching that he let out what was called the lion's roar. After his enlightenment and after um, the attack of all the forms of Mara um, under the Bodhi tree, after his period of ascetic practice, 
he started to take food again and wear a warm robe. And his ascetic companions who saw him said, you're not a real yogi. And we sit on nail, beds of nails and we fast and we do all the kind of wild austerities that yogis in India have done for thousands of years. That will pass. It's okay. <laughs> and you, you know, you're taking food, you're, you're, you've got warm robes, and you're not a real yogi. And the Buddha looked back at them and he said, I have done it all. He said, whatever there is to be done of ascetic practice in this world, I have done so. I have fasted. I have stood all day with my eyes turned up to the sun in the hot sands of the Ganges. I have fasted so that when you touched my stomach, you felt my backbone. Whatever, whatever great practices and ascetic uh, tasks there are, I have done them all. And now I have stopped. I have stopped struggling against a single thing. And in all the ten million universes, and in all the lifetimes, and all the realms of heavens and hells, this is not just your day-to-day emotional swings he's talking about, right? (laughs) It's just the the ten thousand million universes. I take this seat in the center of them all and open my eyes with compassion and wisdom to the world as it is, and am free. And I invite you to take the same seat. Now, many of us could do our own form of the lion's roar if you really look at your own life. I mean, so many of us have tried everything. We have. We have tried money and travel and consumerism. We've tried marriage and divorce and therapy, mountain climbing, liposuction, you know, I mean, <clears throat> sex and drugs, <clears throat> rock and roll, <clears throat> and various things before and after, looking for what would bring us lasting satisfaction, looking for what would really make us happy in the long term. We've done everything, even meditation, right? I remember seeing an article on the front page of the Marin Independence Journal some years ago about the fad in Marin of people who were licking toads because there's a certain psychedelic substance that a particular species of toads excretes on its skin that's related to MDA and if you lick the right toad apparently it doesn't turn into a prince but it turns you into something, whatever. I couldn't find it. I was looking in my files. I couldn't find it today. But we really have tried a lot. I mean, we've got to face it, you know. And sometimes we think, well, if only I did more, you know. If only I got up early and I played the game of tennis and went to the gym and did my day of work and, you know, and went to the theater and then, you know, had a great dinner out and a great night of sex and, you know, then went to sleep and then got up early and started all over again and then traveled and did it as much as I could, as fast as I could, that somehow that would be enough. (sighs) Mostly you get tired is what happens. (laughs) We race. Our culture is so speedy. Remember what Woody Allen said. He said he he took a course in speed reading and he... uh, He read War and Peace in half an hour. It's about Russia, he said. (laughs) What is the source of all this looking and wanting and trying to become? A story for you. There was a man who wandered throughout the world seeking 
his deepest desire. From one city to another looking for fulfillment, fulfillment, happiness never came. Finally, one day exhausted from the search, he sat down under a great tree at the foot of a mountain. What he didn't know was this was the great wish-fulfilling tree. Whatever one wishes immediately becomes fulfilled. As he rested his weariness, he thought, what a beautiful spot this is. I wish I had a home here. And before his eyes, in a moment, a lovely cottage appeared. Delighted by this, he thought, oh, if only I had a partner here to share it with me, my happiness would be complete. And a moment later, a beautiful woman appeared out of the door and beckoned to him, oh, beloved. Well, first I'm hungry, he thought. I wish there was something to eat. And immediately a banquet table appeared with every wonderful kind of food and drink, all the sweets you could imagine. He sat down and began to feast himself, but partway through, still tired, he said, I wish I had someone to come and serve me the food, you know, so that I could really rest. And sure enough, the servant appeared. And finishing the meal, he sat back down and kind of reflected on what was happening. He said, this is mysterious, something strange about this tree. I wonder if there's a spirit or a demon that lives in it. And sure enough, no sooner had he thought this than a great demon appeared. Oh my, he thought, this demon will probably eat me up. And it did. (laughs) That's the description of meditation, actually. When you sit, you see what the mind can do. Every possible story and desire and imagining, endless the play of consciousness. Mind the creator of all things. Dialogues and fantasies and hopes and fears. So what do we do in the midst of the proliferations of this mind? The Buddha's remedy is to sit down and take the one seat in the center of it all and just stop. Open the doors and windows, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the heart. For me, when I first started to teach years ago, I taught in a way that my teachers had traditionally instructed me that we were practicing to overcome laziness and aggression and deal with our greed and confusion and somehow work with all these difficult energies and free ourselves. But as the years have passed, And as I began to listen to people's stories and our practice together, it became clear to me that underneath all these things, our desires and our grasping and our aggression and our confusion, was one thing, that we're afraid. What's called the body of fear, that small sense of self. Our hearts are frightened to let go, to touch all the things of life that are actually the way life is for us. How many moments when we've been frightened to be here, frightened to experience the river of change, this dance of joy and sorrow and birth and death and day and night and sweet and sour and praise and blame, the changing dance that comes out of nothing and produces each day anew and disappears. That we have not let ourselves experience the very life we've been given. When we look at the simplest experience, we just sat in meditation, our breath, our thoughts and feelings, They appear and disappear, like a river. Day and night, the thoughts appear and vanish. The breath breathes itself. When we take the one seat, we rest in that which is timeless. We become that river of change 
and we become the space within which that river flows. I remember Jocelyn King, a very wonderful woman. Her husband, Winston King, was a great Buddhist scholar who traveled to Southeast Asia, to Thailand and Sri Lanka and Burma, and wrote a number of well-known scholarly books in the 1950s and 60s about those traditions. And she, as a kind of dutiful housewife in the 1950s, traveled with her professor husband. And while he was out doing his studies, she said, well, what should I do? So she went into some Buddhist monastery there and meditated and got enlightened. So he got his published books published, and we used to go and visit Winston, but really we were going to visit Jocelyn, right? Winston was sort of the excuse, and we humored Winston. But it was much better actually hanging out, washing dishes in the kitchen after the meal with Jocelyn, and she would be washing the dishes and then look up and smile, and she said, I don't understand it. People are clinging to the quicksand of somethingness, always trying to become something, instead of resting in the firm ground of emptiness. And she would smile and wash the next dish. That's just wonderful. (laughs) To take the one seat is to discover that we can open, to discover a kind of grace or trust in the unfolding of life that is unfolding all the time through us with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. To know that we can do this brings the heart freedom. To open in this way, it's like learning to swim in life, to let go into the water and say, all right, I will swim in it. Sometimes this surfs up, you know, big waves. The water will support you. Even if there's waves, it will still support you. You'll still float in it. You can still swim. When we open, it requires a kind of balance. The yang side, a fearlessness, a strength, a warrior quality of the heart that you could hear from Aung San Suu Kyi, that unwavering strength. But also the yin side, the deepest compassion, the surrender, the most tender vulnerability to let ourselves in an intimate way know birth and death and joy and sorrow, the lot that is given to us as humans. This is the practice of awakening. And if we follow the teachings of the Buddha, his invitation is always so simple to be where we are and to rest in that which is true. So we sit down as we have this evening to meditate in the middle of our life, in the middle of the story of our life, in the drama of our life. You know, and each of us have our drama. I mean, I I look around the room and I see people, and there are great events happening to this one, and this one, and that one, and that one. You know, amazing events. Difficult ones, beautiful ones. Sometimes they're even come together. We come and we sit. And we sit not alone, but we sit as part of this earth that we're born from, as part of this world. So we sit with Yosemite Valley, in our consciousness, and the fog rolling over the redwood trees in Big Sur and Point Reyes, and the beauty of the bay, and the racism and war and injustice and sorrow of the Middle East and of our own culture in so many ways the poverty of people, of children, that the largest number of poor people in America are children. Millions and millions of children in the richest country in the world. The the quickest, fastest growing number of 
people who are impoverished in America are children under the age of 15. We sit with that. We sit with this. In a Cairo slum, a mother cradles a whimpering infant in her arms. The child has dysentery, the result of impure water, is severely dehydrated, and she may well die within hours since the parents have no money for medicine. Three older children, pale and thin, huddle together in the corner of their small shack. Several miles away at the seaport, a new shipment of military transport trucks is being unloaded onto the docks. And we as Americans are the arms producers par excellence on this earth. And we wonder why we're not safe. We sell more weapons on the earth than any other nation. So we sit with all of this, with the beauty and the suffering, our human lot. This from Joseph Campbell. The first step to the knowledge of the wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly human realm as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is and that it cannot and will not be changed. Those who think they know, and their name is Legion, how the universe should have been had they created it, without pain, without sorrow, without death, are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help this world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it. And that no one can do who has not themselves learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life as it is. Now I don't mean in saying this, nor does Ajahn Chah or the Buddha mean when he says take the one seat, that one doesn't respond out of compassion to the injustices and the suffering around us. We do and we must do it. But how do we do it? Do we compound it? Do we react? Or, as Gandhi says, do we let ourselves be the change that we seek in this world? Do we find that place of wisdom? Stillness and love that Aung San Suu Kyi says is unshakable, that flame. When we sit, each time we meditate, we are given the most splendid opportunities to learn again this freedom. We learn it in the body. You sit and your body's contracted and it aches and all the things that you carry from the day or the week or the month or the year that got held in the body start to reveal themselves. The frustration, the pain, the armoring, And you meditate a little bit and all that stuff comes out. It's not that you're doing it wrong. It means that you're finally tending to this soft animal body with your care and your love, which is your attention. (laughs) The church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertising says the body is a business. The body says, I am a fiesta. That's a poem from Eduardo Galeano. So we sit and we begin to re-inhabit the mystery of this human body. From one Catholic priest I interviewed for this recent book, I came from a poor white family where we drank and lived hard. The men treated the body like a truck that you used and ignored. In the church it got worse. I hated to deal with my body. I lived on coffee and then on scotch. Gradually as I looked at the simple people who came to talk to me and saw how many tortured bodies there were as well as tortured souls, 
my faith and love got past all that nonsense about sin and the body. It doesn't have to be so hard. I realized that Christ taught I had to love my enemy, so I took a vow of nonviolence, and this included my body. My practice became, do not torment myself, do not escalate the pain. I began to teach it to others. It turned into a practice of gratitude. I get up in the morning, and the care of my body is where I start, and then I teach others. It's poignant how simple it is. We take the seat with this human form we've been given with respect because it's only here for a certain time. Our vehicle, it's precious, amazing. And then you sit with your mind. Ah. Some people on retreats wish that their body would hurt. because it would distract them from you-know-what, you know? And it does everything. It has no pride at all. The wandering mind, the restless mind, the planning mind, the scattered mind, the critical mind, the judging mind. Yesterday with Byron Katie, who was doing teachings of how to work with the mind, half of the people who raised her hand to talk about the the stories and beliefs inside that she works with your stories and whether they're really true or not. Half the people who raised their hands, their stories were self-judgment. The person who blushes and is ashamed ever to speak to anyone in public because she might blush and it would look terrible and her whole story for her whole life is how she is and if she does this and, and so forth the prison of that story. Or the person who had the terrible abuse in their childhood. But it happened 42 years ago. And the people who abused them aren't around, in fact, might have died. But yet they're still tortured by it. And then the question is, well, who's doing the torturing now? And how did we learn to do this? We have so many stories that the mind tells that we believe about ourselves and how we're supposed to be, how much better, what's wrong with us. You know those stories? Shame and judgment. I mean, most people, they wouldn't even hire you to be a judge in a civilized country. Right? You would have to go to Uganda under Idi Amin and they'd say, yeah, you can be a judge here, all right. I mean, that's how we are to ourselves. We're so hard on ourselves. At a men's retreat, a year or two ago, we were having the circle, as we do in the evenings, a kind of men's council, talking about fathers and sons. And one man in the circle said, I had a really difficult father. He never talked to me. He hardly acknowledged me. You know, I kept wanting him, Dad, I'm here. I kept wanting his approval, his, his blessing, his love. And it, it, it never came. It was in man, it, it was so painful. Year after year, I'd try everything. I'd bring things home. I'd do things. Didn't get much from him. He just wouldn't say anything. So I was so discouraged, I just enlisted in the army. I didn't care if I died. Went to Vietnam. And when I was in Vietnam, I wrote to my father. And after I wrote to him, he wrote me a letter back. And then the next week, he wrote me another letter. And the next week, he wrote me another letter, and he told me all about himself and his life and what he was doing. And it turned out he couldn't talk, but he could write. He said, and before I got home from Vietnam, my father died in a car accident. My father died. He said, but I have a stack of 50 letters that my father wrote to me. And he looked around at all the young men in the retreat, and he said, 
So don't give up on your fathers. It was really a beautiful moment. Because he had this whole story of who he thought his father was. You know those stories? Who we think somebody else is? Who we think that we are? This is the mind. So when we sit, we get to see the mind, the thought factory, spin out all the different beliefs. And we get to bow to them. Thank you for your opinion. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, thank you for your view on that. Very interesting, you know. And just take the seat in the center. Oh, such a relief for the heart. The body, the mind, the emotions, it's the same, you know. They color our days, the storms, the sorrows of the heart, the loneliness, the regret, the longings, the excitement, the anger, the fear, so many things that come. Can we sit and bow to them too? This is our human life to have these emotions. It's not like they're supposed to go away. There's a certain value even to the difficult ones, if we can really learn to tend them, to respect them, to honor them. Like grief, which is really what most anger is, you know, too. Most of the time when we're angry, it's grief. We're afraid. We are grieving. There's something we're going to lose or loss. In the Lakota tradition, the Lakota Native American Indians, a person who is grieving is considered most wakan, most holy. There's a sense somehow that when someone is struck by the sudden lightning of loss, an openness to that which is beyond this world is about them. This state of holiness is respected and valued, and grieving people's prayers are considered especially strong, and it's proper to ask them for help. What a different culture to honor that. Oh. At this retreat in Yucca Valley, there was a woman on the retreat, very beautiful person, who came and she was mourning something that had happened a long time ago. And she told me the story that when she was a little girl long ago, uh, she was three years old, a brother was born to her, Down syndrome, retarded. They didn't even know it quite at the beginning, but after a year it was really evident. And it became the family secret, kind of ashamed. And he never went out and they didn't talk about him. She said, but I loved him. He was such a beautiful person. And he didn't learn to speak very well, but he just, he had no inhibitions about loving me. He just would see me and his eyes would brighten and he would throw his arms around me and he loved everybody. And when he was seven years old, they put him on a train, my parents, and he was taken away to some place, some institution. And they wouldn't let me to go to visit him ever. And then when he was 14, he died. Drowned, I think, happened. And they wouldn't let me go to his funeral. And as she was sitting on her retreat, all that was unfinished about this came to her. And she told me the story and told me his name, told me all these things. And I just sat with her and we wept. And then I said, let's go out in the desert, find a place where you can make a shrine to him, a memorial. She went and she piled up these stones and did this because she wasn't able to go to her brother's funeral. She did the funeral that she had never done. I said, it's fine. Weep if you spend the week. Just let the tears come. This is a week that you've needed for your whole life. And she did. 
she came back and in an odd way she was she was exhausted and tired and radiant and she said you know i sat out there and i listened to my heart and to my brother who i'd lost so long ago and i somehow feel like i have him back she said because what i learned is that he was the most loving uh, un uh, un unbarricaded human being I ever knew, the most loving person. And now, if I want that in my life, I have to be him. I have to do it. It was, it was quite amazing to be with her. So each of us will sit, and the joys and the sorrows of our life will show themselves. And our practice is to sit and rest in the pure space of the heart, the space of awareness and compassion, and bow and say, oh, this too, this too in this human life. (coughs) To know what is present and touch it with the kindness of the heart and not battle against a single thing. (coughs) I mean, it's hard enough without judging yourself. The story of the Christian Desert Fathers, where one monk goes to the abbot and says, Tell us, Master, what should we do when we see the brothers dozing during the sacred prayers and services? Should we pinch them to wake them up? And the old man said, Oh, if I see a brother sleeping, I would just put his head on my knees and let him rest. To rest in this one seat is to return to our own Buddha nature, to that space of knowing which is open and pure and timeless, which is listening to these words and feeling the feelings that come and sensing the body as you sit, and all that comes and goes and yet is present without movement, timeless, eternal, unborn, undying. It is to return to that which we know before all the things that rise and fall in us. And everyone in this room has an intimation of that, has a sense of it, because it is who we really are. The Buddha, when he took the seat in the center of the world, stopped running, He stopped struggling and fighting against a single thing. He said, let me sit and see this life as it is. Samsara and nirvana in this moment. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi puts it this way. He says, when we can accept the inevitable changes of life, Life is changing all the time. When we can accept the inevitable changes of life and find our composure in the midst of it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. It's not a different life than you and you and you and I have. It's your life. It's this life. It's the very life that we have. When we can rest in this life, with composure in all of the joys and sorrows, this is the place of liberation. I love this passage from the writings of Thomas Merton, where he was visiting Polonarua, the temple in Sri Lanka that has these beautiful carved marble Buddhas out of a cliff. One of, Thomas Merton thought they were the most beautiful works of art he'd ever seen in the world. And he writes, describing them walking across the, the grass barefoot in the morning, looking at these Buddhas, the peaceful, empty faces. He said, I saw the silence of these extraordinary figures, the great smiles, huge and subtle, filled with every possibility, 
questioning nothing, rejecting nothing. The great smile of peace, not of emotional resignation, but a peace that is seen through every question with compassion, without trying to discredit anyone or anything, without refutation. This is the seat in the center of the world that is really our birthright. And all the things that we do and all the things that we try to do to fulfill ourselves, in the end, come back to can we be where we are? It's important to remember that as you meditate, all the other stuff will come what I sometimes call the Freudian layer, you know, the conflicts and the unfinished business and so forth. It's not who we are. This is not who we are. That's the body of fear, the small sense of self. And you can bow to it, say, yes, here you are again. It's okay, they're there. It's kind of like your pet, right? Your personality. It's okay. You're not going to get rid of it. Treat it kindly. But as you touch with awareness and compassion, there comes innately a ground of goodness, a renewal, an openness. I remember being in the Cambodian refugee camps years ago. And in these camps, in these dry, barren rice fields in the hot season, baking hot. Everybody had a little hut, four feet by six feet wide, made of bamboo, that the UN High Commissioner on Refugees uh, had arranged. Uh, You know, 50 or 100,000 people, all these little huts one after another. And people who had lived through the most terrible Holocaust, the destruction of villages and temples and elders and their whole society. There would just be a fragment of a family, one uncle and a niece, one grandmother and the two of her eight grandchildren who had survived. And what I noticed in this camp, I came to the camp about three or four months after it was established, is that these huts which were tiny and quite close together, each hut had a little front yard that was about a foot and a half wide, by, a foot and a half deep by three feet wide, before the little path in the next hut. And in most of those yards, there was a little garden. Somehow somebody in the camp, through the UN probably, had offered seeds, little squash plants, little bean plants. And there was a big pit well at the far end of the camp that you had to walk a mile to with buckets on your shoulders and then wade in an hour line and walk way down the bulldozers had dug it to the bottom of this huge pit and dig your water. And people would go every day in the morning and the afternoon, fill their buckets with water and come back and water their little squash plant and their little bean plant. And the tendrils were growing up over the roofs of their little huts. And it was people whose lives had suffered and who were broken in so many ways, replanting their life. And to me, the symbol of those gardens was the symbol of this human spirit, that this force of life underneath all the difficulties and all the sorrows and all the struggles, there is a force of life in you that is unshakable that is unstoppable. It is like groundwater of human spirit. It's that spirit that Aung San Suu Kyi carries. So when she comes out and she says, you know, how, how is it to be free? And she says, I never thought myself to not be free. Such a spirit she carries. And this is the invitation in all the great spiritual teachings. It's not so complicated. Thoreau says, most people go fishing for their whole life without realizing it's not fish thereafter. 
many of us have wandered and sought for so long. And yet what we seek is not something out there. It's what we already have. It's what we already are in our heart if we can rest in this. It's not far away. To sit is to resume that true nature, to learn to trust, to feel the grace of this heart, the great heart of compassion, the heart of a Buddha that is in you, the capacity to open to the joys and sorrows of life that has been given to you, and the freedom from that capacity. And to sit in that way is really a labor of love, whether it is your grief and loneliness or your excitement and joy, whether it is the release of pain or the release of creativity. It is like a labor. And it knows how to open. It is completely trustworthy, like a flower knows which petal to open. Your own body and heart and mind also know how to open. You can't miss. And nothing is supposed to be happening for you other than what's happening. You just have to bow to it and say, oh yes, this too. My mind is so busy when I sit today. That is what you're given to be aware of. Very busy mind, oh. My body feels kind of tight after that day of all that I did. Your body's saying, thank you for paying attention. (sighs) Breathe, bow to it. My heart feels so touched and connected to the people who struggle in this world, not just my struggle, but their struggle. I want to do something. Bow to that and honor that voice. In the smallest things, to take the seat and listen. When I was with my teacher in India, Nisargadatta Maharaj, this wonderful old Indian guru, he, he used to talk about awakening and freedom, you know, and he would just laugh. He said, you think you're not free? Imagine that you would think that. What a silly thought, you know, and he would just laugh again. So tell me about that. Tell me what you think, you know, illicit people. It was so wonderful to be around him because he was so happy. So one day a man came to Nisargadatta's little apartment where he was teaching. He'd heard that this Nisargadatta was this guru and there was a number of students around him, disciples. A young man came and he asked a question. He asked some question about the nature of his own thoughts or consciousness or mind or whatever, a spiritual question. And Nisargadatta answered, they had this little dialogue and After a while, he kind of just got up and left and never came back. And a few days later, one of the people in our group sitting around, the guru, said, Maharaj, this man who came last week and asked this question, he asked a simple question, you gave him an answer, and then he left and he's never come back. He didn't seem really so, you know so dedicated to his practice, what will happen to him? Did he have just a moment of remembering, of, of understanding, and now will he lose it and will he go back and, you know, into unconsciousness? And Nisargadatta just laughed. He said, oh, it's too late. <laughs> too late for him. So I said, what do you mean it's too late? He said, just the fact that he made his way to this part of Bombay and came up the steps to my apartment and sat here and asked this one question about mind or consciousness, whatever his question was, means that that part of him that knows who he really is, that part beyond birth and death, that part has begun to awaken. He said, and it's too late. You cannot put it to sleep. Not possible. Not put that to sleep. It may take some time, but it's too late for him. And you know what? It's too late for you too. 
because you do know. You do know. Deeply you know. And even though you get lost, that's just for a little while, and then you come back again to this seat, to this true nature. A poem from Ryokan, the most beloved poet of Japan, after 60 years wandering as a monk and itinerant poet, what will remain as my legacy? Flowers in the spring, the nightingale in the summer, and the crimson leaves of autumn. Just this. Let's sit for a moment. How can anybody who has learned to ignite their heart with the thunder flame of their own pain ever know defeat, victory and freedom and compassion is ensured to those who are capable of learning the hardest lessons that life has to offer? Chant is a simple one. We've done, done it many times. In the Buddhist tradition, there's a great text called The Teachings of Complete and Perfect Enlightenment in 80,000 verses. And it's also summed up in 8,000 verses and in 800 verses. Fortunately, for our sake, tonight it is summed up in one syllable, which saves a great deal of reading on your part. And the reason this syllable is the summary of the text of perfect wisdom is that it's considered in Sanskrit the seed syllable, which is the first sound and the last sound. And most importantly, it's the sound of letting go. It's the seed syllable, ah. So I'd like us just to sing or chant ah for a little while together, and then we'll go out into the night. Ah, 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 ad harmony, ah, to bring blessings to all you touch.
Thank you. See you again. Thank you for coming and for your generosity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.